is 70 degrees out right now. We're going to see a high of 73 today. And it is time for Planet Watch. Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a conversation with organic farming policy pioneer Mark Lipson. Mark is credited with having a major hand in crafting the national standards for organic farming. Most recently, he worked for the Obama administration working on agriculture policy. We'll talk about the connection between agriculture policy and our health and that of the environment. Coming up on Planet Watch. We have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. You can also support us at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash planet underscore watch. And finally, we'd like to thank MZ for sponsoring this weekly program on local station KSCO Santa Cruz. And a special shout-out and uh, be, be safe to our friends in North Carolina, especially in the Carborough area. Hope you are weathering the storm well. And a hello to our friends at WGRN Radio in the wonderful town of Columbus, Ohio. We will go to that interview in just a moment, but here's a few headlines in science and environmental news. We're going to start out with intern Tommy Martin with this story for you. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, Around 90% of global fish stocks are overfished, and farmed fish is now the primary source of the fish people eat. Much of this decline is attributed to the unregulated practices of industrial fisheries in, in international waters. Deep sea trawling destroys seafloor habitats and captures many creatures which are dis discarded after getting tangled. In an effort to tackle this growing threat, the first all-British radar satellite called Novasar will launch to space aboard an Indian rocket. Novasar can take pictures of the surface of Earth in every kind of weather, day or night, and can discern objects on the ground as small as 34 inches across. The mission incorporates low-cost, miniaturized components and aims to demonstrate an affordable approach to large-scale monitoring. With the first session of conferences on the UN, law of sea, the, the, the UN Law of the Sea coming to a close tomorrow, discussion of a legally binding treaty between the 193 nations could rely heavily on this technology. Thank you, Tommy, for that report about uh, monitoring rogue vessels. It has been a huge problem with overfishing. And I was down in Argentina and remember this problem being mentioned, that they were just people who had no right to fish there were coming from other countries and fishing the heck out of the environment there. And by the way, that name of that satellite, Nova SAR, the SAR is an acronym, S-A-R, probably stands for Synthetic Aperture Radar, and uh, I was tipped off that this must be a radar thing because he said, Tommy just said, that they're going to be able to image the Earth's surface both uh, at all times, clouds or no. <laughs> you can't do that with visible light, but you can do it with radar. Okay, so, and uh, here's another story for you that's uh, really current today. Um, the Hurricane Florence, which has been downgraded to a tropical depression, makes its slow and damaging way across the Carolinas and into Virginia. The death toll currently stands at 15 and is expected to rise along with the floodwaters as heavy rains continue to fall across much of the southeast and rivers expecting to crest by Monday. 
record-setting rainfall totals ranging from 30 to 40 inches and in some places over 90 inches <laughs> has caused major flash, flash flooding and including into the Appalachian Mountains this afternoon. Houses surrounded by red water, rescue boats motoring through towns and homes with their roofs ripped off. These images have become all too familiar as the frequency and intensity of hurricanes increases, fueled by warmer ocean temperatures due to global warming. At an estimated $30 billion in costs, CNBC reports Florence could be among the top 10 most expensive storms yet to hit the United States. For reference, Katrina cost $190 billion. So a fraction of that, but still in the ugly top 10 category. And they are getting more frequent and both more powerful. And we know that North Carolina is the state where they made it illegal to even mention climate change in their <laughs> policy about dealing with coastal development and so on. Them but, in Florida. <laughs> right. Florida also being one of the main states to be hit heavily by climate change. But speaking of states, uh, California, on the other hand, this week, uh, Governor Brown uh, signed SB, that's State Bill 100, into law, where California is pledging and gearing up to actually uh, reduce or uh, get rid of all of uh, the uh, uh, carbon emissions from uh, our electricity generation by the year 2045. Uh, now, note, electricity is, uh, there's a lot of energy in electricity, but it's less than half of our total energy picture. However, it's like 40, 45%. Zeroing out all the carbon emissions from that by 2045 is pretty ambitious, even though that is still, you know, over 20 years away. However, then he, uh, Brown himself, issued an ex executive order, kind of all in relation to this big global climate action summit that's been going on out here up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. He also then issued an executive order to zero out carbon emissions from all of our economy-wide energy infrastructure. Now, that's really significant. <laughs> it's just an executive order, but uh, stay tuned. And uh, this was the big week for the climate summit. I went up there, and I'll probably at the end of the show tell you a little bit about a couple of the days' worth of sessions I went to and what all was talked about and done and thousands of people there with great intentions and knowledge and wisdom and background from all over the world, including one whole day of women warriors, heroes from all over the world who've been fighting the good fight on the front lines in countries all over the place against uh, the rampages of the fossil fuel industry. And there was a wonderful picture on the front page of our local paper with our former uh, assemblyman, John Laird, currently natural resources secretary at the state of California under Brown, shaking Al Gore's hand. So that was a nice uh, image there, a moment of recognition of these people, including Harrison Ford, a lot of celebrity types who have been um, fighting the good fight, trying to raise awareness about this issue. So let's keep raising the awareness. That's one of the reasons we have this show. We started it right after the 2016 election, and we're very glad to be here talking today about uh, a big impact on the environment, agriculture. It both feeds us and causes other problems for us and other creatures on Earth. Um, organic farming has been one form of agriculture that tries to both mitigate that and even make the soil better than when it found it. And one of those people who's been working diligently in the field, if I might use that term, for the past 34 years uh, is Mark Lipson. He started out... Uh, we met a long time ago at UC Santa Cruz when we were both 
undergrads, and it's been a long and amazing path since then. He is still involved in the Santa Cruz-based Molino Creek Farming Collective, which produces, by the way, some of the best dry-farmed tomatoes in the world. Um, and he was one of the first paid staff members at the California Certified Organic Farmers, CCOF. He has served as policy director at the Organic Farming Research Foundation, and he chaired USDA's Organic Working Group. He was recently, not so recently, but in the past decade, tapped by the Obama administration to head up uh, the organic part of their efforts there under the agriculture USDA. So he's uh, still recovering from that, I'm sure, and he's our guest here on Planet Watch. Thanks, Mark Lipson, for coming into the studio on this Sunday afternoon. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Let's talk about the current events first, and then we'll work our way back a little bit. Okay. Uh, since we've been doing this show, we've been talking to a lot of different experts about what's happening in the policy arena. Um, really, it's just a massive deregulation of a lot of the rules and regs that were put in place to protect the public. And in agriculture, I'm sure it's no different. We talked to Dan Hayfley about the loosening of potentially drilling you know, regulations off the coast of California. And I was curious if you could give us an update on you know, what's being done over on the agriculture side Every day I wake up to a new bad piece of bad news that, you know, now I feel unprotected about coal slurry. What about in agriculture? What's uh, under attack and what are, what's being defended and by whom? I know that's a big question. Well, it's a good question uh, because certainly the pattern that you're describing with the administration in terms of deregulation and dismantling uh, is of great concern, I would hope, for everybody, whether you favor having less regulations or not, how it happens and how <clears throat> that goes about is uh, a, a big question. And in agriculture, the Trump administration under Sonny Perdue as Secretary of Agriculture has been moving relatively slowly. They've been quite preoccupied with the trade issues and tariffs on agricultural products as part of the retaliation to putting tariffs on industrial products. So that's been the biggest issue in agriculture, but we also have the Farm Bill going on, uh, coming to fruition right now in Congress, hopefully. It's the cycle that happens every five years of all the federal farm programs and spending getting reauthorized and reorganized by Congress. And you may have heard some of the issues there around work requirements for the SNAP program for nutrition support programs and some of the environmental concerns in the House version of the Farm Bill would very explicitly end some regulation of farm chemicals in terms of their impact on the environment and endangered species. So there's a lot at stake there. Inside USDA, it's been a, a slower process, partly because it's the end of the farm bill cycle and those programs that were authorized in the 2014 farm bill are, you know, coming to the end of their life cycle. In the organic and uh, local agriculture sphere, those programs are still being administered and the people at the in the rank and file 
jobs uh, managing those programs at USDA are doing the best they can as they have been for years. But we'll come to a pivot point with the Farm Bill and the next budget cycle for all of the agencies. And I think we'll see a much more accelerated state of uh, dismantling and, and deregulation in agriculture as well. I don't see any reason why that would be different from what they've been doing in EPA and Department of Energy, Department of Education. So USGA is just a little bit slower in terms of their schedule. So you worked for the Obama administration and the USDA. How does it feel to be potentially watching a lot of the work you did being undone by this administration? It's pretty, pretty scary. I did work inside the headquarters at USDA in the office of the secretary for five years, and my job was pretty spread around. I was policy advisor on a number of different things, not only organic agriculture, but also local food, the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative, uh, various aspects of the USDA's role in regulating genetically engineered crops and the coexistence initiative of Secretary Tom Vilsack. So I got to put my fingers on a lot of different things, and I... I will admit after the election I had some recurring nightmares of somebody sitting at my desk there down the hall from the secretary whose job it was to just dismantle everything I did <laughs> while I was there. It, <clears throat> it hasn't played out that way yet, uh, for which, uh, you know, I think we should be grateful because mm -hmm. there is still a lot of very important good work that people weren't even aware of at the time, and is certainly lost in the shuffle, but in terms of integrating organic and local foods, local food systems into all the different parts of USDA, we made great progress. We, we really did. That was my main job, was to infiltrate beyond just the organic regulatory and labeling program, national organic program, which that's all many people think about when they think about USDA and organic, but my job was to help take that into the conservation programs, further into the research programs, finance and credit, all those different aspects of what USDA does for agriculture. We were integrating organic and, and local food systems into those programs. If you could uh, tell us just for a moment, Mark, um, how you got that job. I mean, I worked in the federal government, but it was as a lowly, just out of college guy. You're, you had this job, I guess you were invited uh, uh, at pretty high policy levels. And uh, I assume you wore a coat and tie most days or something. But anyway, tell us how that came about that you got invited back there or got that job. Well, I had been working on federal policy for organic for you know, almost 15 years before uh, President Obama got elected, since the mid-90s as the policy director at the Organic Farming Research Foundation. And our focus there was on federal policy, specifically funding for research for organic, which was pretty much didn't exist uh, up until the early 2000s. But as a result of our efforts, we created a fairly substantial 
stream of research funding in Congress. And then that created these program uh, elements within USDA to spend that money and implement it. So I was very familiar with different parts of USDA after working on several farm bills and all those agencies. But uh, one of my very close friends and uh, colleagues, Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, was selected to be the deputy secretary, the number two position in USDA, uh, you know, during the transition uh, into the first Obama administration. And so she asked me to uh, come to Washington and, and work with her and, and the secretary and do, uh, as I described, infiltrate organic out through uh, much of the department. So th that's how it happened. I took, I took the big leap. I uh, left the farm in uh, the hands of uh, my partners there at Molino Creek and lived on Capitol Hill for five years. What a, what a huge change that must be. And as you're speaking about, you know, uh, Kathleen Merrigan getting appointed to deputy director, I'm thinking about the way we watch the cabinet appointments come down and be announced in this current administration. And every one to the person of the people who got picked to be the head of these agencies were people who had fought their regulations from outside as lobbyists or opponents in, in corporations. You know, you have Rex Tillerson, head of Exxon. You have Betsy DeVos, billionaire, who ran a private education company, loan mm -hmm. company, collecting company. Um, you have people who are hostile to the mission of the very agencies they were being hired to do. Are you in touch with anyone at USDA now that's telling you what it's like to work there under Purdue? And I assume it's not related to Purdue Chicken, but maybe it is. Uh as far as I know, Sonny Purdue is not related to the Purdue Chicken Company, but but he is a, a agricultural uh, businessman, entrepreneur. He's a big international fertilizer, uh, you know, broker or dealer. Uh, got his hands, you know, as a businessman in a lot of different aspects of international. Uh, agricultural supply trade. Um, Maybe not as so, potentially corrupt as the EPA chief was to find that he had ties to all kinds of lobbyists. Well, certainly. Had been paying for them to stay at his their apartment and <laughs> various connections like that, in which he left under a cloud of corruption charges. So far, Secretary Purdue uh, has, you know, not been in the ethical spotlight that many of the other cabinet officials have been. Maybe the journalists just aren't doing their job, but maybe they are. Maybe it's just fine. Who's to say, except someone who could look into that more carefully. But yeah. you, are you hearing from them that it's a tough time to be working for the federal government? They just got denied yes. a raise that they were due, that they got promised, I heard, the federal workers. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, when I got to USDA in 2010, uh, there was a pay freeze imposed, uh, so I didn't get a raise the whole time I was there, but then in the l last years of the Obama administration, there was a raise uh, successfully authorized by Congress, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how they've just refrozen that, but yeah, it's discouraging, I think, for very, very many people inside, not just because of the pay raise, but because, you know, there's sort of a 
very uh, vicious angle of attack on the value of federal workers and uh, and the work that they do. It's not just that you know the people are somehow uh, not to be respected, but the work as well. Uh, so. Well, maybe we should lift some of the benefits of the farm bill and uh, the USDA. And one is to keep our food from killing us um, in the industrial food process. It keeps, you know, them testing food to make sure that we're not eating bacteria-laden chicken or anything like that. There's a number of other really good regulations that we would probably be dead without or we wouldn't have healthy food to eat. Uh, and the organic farm policy bit that you've been part of is one big piece because when we go to the market... We know we're actually buying organic, not pesticide-laden produce. I mean, it's supposed to be what it says it is rather than just yes. a marketing label. Of course, another issue that goes along with regulations is the enforcement thereof or, or lack thereof. Uh, I mean, it could be that some of the regulations that the current administration are finding hard to deal with the way they would ideally like to, namely getting rid of them, uh, they can just... Uh, kind of slack off on enforcing and maybe there there can even be some official or unofficial policies put in place to hey we're we're not going to put money out there as much to enforce but i i haven't been keeping track of that you probably have mark is there anything mm -hmm. along those lines going on because that kind of makes me wonder about food i eat uh, that should be regulated well with respect to the organic label and the national organic program and its enforcement uh, I continue to have great confidence uh, in that. Uh, you know, perhaps I'm biased because I am close to the people who are still working there. Uh, but from what they tell me is that they are still able to do their jobs uh, as long as they just stick to the job that they're supposed to be doing. They are, you know, being left alone to do that. Um, other parts of USDA uh, may be more like, you know, what you're describing in terms of environmental enforcement and uh, those other aspects that USDA does regulate. Hmm. You um, were there at a time when people seemed to have pretty good morale. Um, when... This administration changed over. There's quite a chaotic turnover of staff in a lot of the agencies. A lot of people left, but those who stayed, and we, we saw this in the op-ed that recently came out of the executive mm -hmm. branch, there seems to be within the government a second government of people who are just trying to save the public by quietly just either slowing things down that they seem are bad or foot-dragging or not doing. Um, we call this, what, the government in exile. In fact, when we heard a lot of the facts that were going to be taken off of the climate change website, um, we heard a lot of this was archived and saved, so it just didn't get tampered with. Can you talk about that move and this sort of idea that we have a government in exile within the government or separate from the government? What in the world is that about? That's super scary and alarming to think that people felt it was that dire that they had to do that. And, and what did they do? I mean, well, rescuing the data was certainly something that was on everybody's mind right away, especially in terms of climate and environment, because it was very clear that, you know, stuff could start disappearing 
right away and the role of the federal government in collecting and distributing and you know making this kind of data available is is absolutely crucial and some stuff has gone away uh, not so much in USDA and the USDA website but uh, I was certainly one of the people who made a point of downloading things uh, that we had built on the USDA website for example the know your farmer know your food initiative around local foods uh, had a very significant database of projects that had been funded by USDA over the Obama terms relative to local and regional food systems and you know very important you know map if you will of of the dots that we that the food movement had you know put on the map organizing locally and using federal funding to do that uh, as far as I know that hasn't disappeared uh, and most of the information with the National Organic Program is still readily uh, available there pretty fully transparent but the uh, government in exile or resistance is uh, you know covers a lot of ground it's a whole big spectrum uh, everything from a new Twitter account that, that a couple of the agencies developed so they yeah. could talk frankly to the public yeah the, the alt uh, Alt NPS, Alt Forest Park Service, Service, and yeah. yeah, National Park Service. Those, those folks uh, pioneered the way uh, right away because uh, they were being censored. They said, "I think they're going to drill in national parks," and suddenly their Twitter account be cut off. Yes. So now they've got an alternative one, but it's kind of hard to know who's the spokesperson at that point and whether they're still party to information that yeah. they would have had from inside. Yeah. yeah, and in the normal course of business, the switch from one administration to the next, you know, people are going to make changes to shape and uh, emphasize their communications in different ways, but that's different from lying and censoring the truth. And so the fact that federal employees started reacting this way it was an indicator of how extreme the situation seemed to be well it, and continues to be or we wouldn't have had that op-ed saying we're trying to protect the country from the worst impulses of this president that's pretty unprecedented to happen at all by the way you can uh, contact us uh, while mark's here with us uh, at, on today's show uh, and uh, interact with our guests uh, or even in, in between shows afterwards. But anyway, our email address is radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You can also be on our Facebook page at Planet Watch Radio. Our Facebook page takes comments and questions. We're going to go to a very short break right now, play a little song that maybe is has the line, it's time to talk frankly now. So we're going to be talking very frankly to you in the next set of discussion, so please stick around here on Planet Watch with our guest, Mark Lipson.
not talk falsely now is what he said and there's a lot of false talk going on including disputing how many people died in Puerto Rico I mean that's got to hurt a lot of the people who lost people in Puerto Rico it really is a situation where facts are under dispute including scientific studies so um, what do we do about that in the ag world Mark Lipson our guest here who was recently part of the Obama administration is back on the west coast now and uh, is our guest today well, one of the very uh, concerning things that the administration has done recently is they decided they were going to move the key research and science agencies of USDA out of the headquarters in Washington, D.C. and find some other place in the country for those agencies to operate out of. And the implications seeming to be that, well, we don't really need those people around the headquarters. And uh, so we're talking about the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, which runs all the competitive grant programs that go out to all the universities, spends on the order of uh, half a billion a, a year in running the agricultural research and education system. And the Economic Research Service, which is another branch of USDA, which is responsible for accurate data and reporting about every aspect of food and agriculture in this country. And several people have noted that recently some of the statements by the administration about things like nutrition and uh, uh, consolidation in agriculture were not consistent with what the actual reports and analysis from the Economic Research Service have shown. So the official U.S. government data was contradicting the political statements that the administration was making. So it's kind of like you can do a study, that's all well and good, but if you deep six the results and ignore them. Or don't read them in the first place, which is kind of what I've heard happens in other uh, well, agencies. They look, say this the, is happening, and he just says, no, it's not. I don't believe that. I'm the, 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 Fox News. The role of science in uh, agriculture and agricultural policy has, you know, been very contested all along, and there are certainly problems within the Obama administration that I observed. So it's not like it's uh, went from a perfect system where science was always respected and understood 
by the policymakers, but now it's just a wholesale rejection of the idea that science and data actually matter. Or it's the politicization of data, which we haven't seen before. You know, if it doesn't reflect well on someone, it's somehow suspect, and that's the mm -hmm. litmus test. Yeah, I'm trying to say that data has always been politicized, but uh -huh. now it's just being utterly disregarded. Okay, so it's even a beyond <laughs> what the original problem was. Hey, you know, talking about science and data, uh, maybe this would be a good point here to get back to the farm, so to speak, now that Mark's back here on the West Coast and up on the farm, up the coast from here. Uh, and there's this whole thing about regenerative agriculture and how that holds great hope for our future. Uh, and, of course, you know, doing better kind of old-fashioned organic farming techniques, nothing wrong with that. It's really great in many ways, but... We've been having a discussion about how much hope does it actually hold for solving all of our carbon problems. <laughs> it's kind of like maybe it's necessary but not sufficient. And um, Mark has some views on this, which um, may be somewhat different from what we heard on last week's interviews and on future shows. But anyway, let's go ahead and because and, there's data behind this well, stuff, supposedly. Let me, let me start with uh, the term regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture was a term that... Robert Rodale started using about 40 years ago. I used to support the Rodale Institute. <laughs> and you know, he was very, making a very specific statement about the ability of natural systems in agriculture to continually restore life and restore the nutrition of fertility and keep pests in balance. So the notion of regenerative agriculture was synonymous with good fundamental soil-based organic farming. Now it's been co-opted, I think, or reified, if you want to use a fancier term, to mean something well beyond good organic farming somehow and uh, potentially or to some people's rhetoric certain a certainty to be able to pull carbon down massively out of the atmosphere and have these super biological soil machines that are uh, just going to accumulate carbon like crazy and there's some appealing aspects to that i mean if you look at the reality of the carbon cycle in its totality we really don't want to put any more in the atmosphere we really don't want to put any more in the oceans and short of turning it into giant blocks and sending it into outer space the only other place it could go is into the surface, that is the soil and the terrestrial vegetation uh, of our planet. And because now 20, 20 years since, uh, <clears throat> you know, we wrote a report in 1997 at the Organic Farming Research Foundation that called for an explosion in applied soil microbial ecology 
you know, it was clear that that was going to be the future, and that's what we wanted research funding to be able to focus on. And now, because we were successful in creating funding for organic agriculture research, and there's faculty and postdocs and trial fields all over the country working on this, there, there has been a big explosion in understanding more about the constituents of natural uh, healthy soils and you know we're we're seeing into the microbiome and the microecology of soils in a way we never could before some people are mistaking that ability to to see into the system now for understanding how it actually works and those are not the same thing but we have a great great strides in measuring and identifying and, and quantifying a lot more of what's going on in the soil ecology. And so that has led people to notice that in certain conditions you can really rapidly build up the soil organic living biological component and that does indeed in a certain part of the cycle pull down carbon out of the atmosphere. That's how vegetation and soils work in our planet. I don't want to be, uh, you know, disparaging anyone who is really pursuing this work, but I do think there's a big problem with people who are asserting it's possible if we managed every single acre of cultivatable or plantable land on the planet that we'd somehow get us back down to 400 parts per million or maybe even 350. And I have heard at numerous conferences this, this statement being asserted quite flatly. And I think that's a form of denial. You know, we've, we've changed this planet on a geological scale. And we're, we're not going to be getting anywhere back to 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide for thousands of years. We have to understand that that is, this, you know, we have changed things on that scale. None, none of that is to say that organic agriculture and regenerative, if you want to call it, that shouldn't be a top priority. That's what I've been It has other benefits, in other words, in addition to some benefit on the climate, it has other great benefits like our soil will feed us for longer. We won't maybe need to use fossil fuel fertilizers as well. Well, and, you know, the necessity of reducing or eliminating poisons in agriculture, you know, pesticides has kind of gotten lost because it's not glossy and sexy somehow anymore seems imperative to people. They have to find something new to be advocating for. But we haven't solved that problem. No, not in the least. It's gotten much, much worse. And And we're also using massive amounts of fertilizer, which are made from partially fossil fuels. A big portion of them um, are natural gas, as I understand it. So... It's not like there isn't that equation there in in conventional ag where you have pesticides and you have fossil fuel-based 
fertilizers in massive amounts going. Yeah, and nitrogen into- waste is killing our waterways everywhere. The dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coasts of New England and Oregon. Are, these are all so the so result of nitrogen manufactured synthetic nitrogen pollution, which is essentially built into our agricultural system. So cleaning up those problems would be a major contribution from organic, sustainable, regenerative agriculture. Uh, But then just to put the kind of a, a finishing touch for now on this carbon discussion, the task before us is to get tens of billions, not millions, but thousands of billions, tens of billions of tons of carbon permanently out of the atmosphere a year. (laughs) <laughs> which, um, as Mark said, it might be like shooting it all into outer space. I sometimes envision, you know, carbon bergs in the ocean floating around, or maybe we put hard casings on them like old nuclear waste containers and sink them to the bottom of the ocean, but you have all your carbon permanently sequestered there. But I don't know. There, are, Somebody may come up with something and figure out ways to be fair and make money with that but uh, we're we're talking agriculture now and what we can do with that and mark is saying getting massive amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere we'd only get some small part of that way there with even the best agriculture practices well i i will say that i had a conversation earlier this year with uh, the writer bill mckibben of course who founded 350.org and and uh, one of the most important voices uh, about climate change, period. So Bill was in Santa Cruz for the Right Livelihood Winners Conference, an, an amazing event. Um, but I asked him, because I'd, I'd just been to a whole series of conferences about you know, regenerative-ishness and saving the planet with carbon farming. And I said, so what do you think about this? stuff and he said well I've had this conversation with uh, Michael Mann the Penn State climate scientist uh, who's you know been leading efforts around the globe to predict what's going to happen with climate change and he said they you know they crunched the math they, they went through it and yeah maybe if everything worked perfectly we we could make a dent of, uh, you know, 30 or 40 parts per million over some time span of decades. And, yeah, that'd be a a non-trivial dent, but it's not going to save the planet. It's not going to reverse climate change or global heating. Mm. And so, not just my hunch and my, you know, look at the numbers, but guys like that. I see we have a caller, but uh, please, caller, if you're listening, email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Tommy's scanning the computer there. On Facebook. (laughs) You can look at Planet Watch on Facebook. Our guest is Mark Lipson. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're talking about agriculture policy and its relationship with all kinds of different topics today. We are, uh, we've gone from talking about pesticides to talking about um, climate change and carbon sequestration. But I want to talk about a bigger thing, which is, you know, sometimes all that stands between the public and the ravages of the corporate system, our capitalist, hyper-capitalist system that we're in, is government policy. 
you know, we elect these people to help us, protect us, mm -hmm. supposedly. And I don't feel very protected right now by my government. I feel like they've opened up the floodgates to let the worst of the impulses of greed take over the country and rob us of our ability to live a good life, which, you know, if I were one of those kids, I would sue because the, the happiness factor and ability to live is being seriously impinged upon now. Why is our policy system so broken that people can get elected who vow to unleash the worst impulses of greed upon the public and we don't seem to be able to stop them, at least not yet? And if we just changed parties, it wouldn't necessarily mean we got a handle on this, would it? No, <clears throat> it, it wouldn't because, especially in agriculture, there's been a bipartisan sort of consensus for quite a while about the f the most important fundamentals which is that the basic imperative is for a cheap food supply and that trade a international export of agricultural products from the US is a basic underpinning of the economy and, you know, this is 60 years deep, Democrat, Republican, everybody. The, the cheap food supply is the dominant imperative of agricultural and food policy. To the point where we have surplus that we feed to cows because we can't even export it at the prices we're making corn, apparently. Uh, given, some of it's being given away because there's surplus. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I mean, it's the nature of commodities to, you know, that's their point, is to become cheaper and cheaper to the point of, you know, valuelessness. So there's a and, price to pay for that eventually. We just haven't paid it yet. Well, the, the, no, we've been paying the price deeply for many years because cheap food means that we have devalued farmers and farmland and the health of consumers, farm workers. Small farm you know, owners. All of those Small things risk. literally have been devalued in, because that you have to have the other side of the equation. If food comes out as cheap, everything that goes into it has to be somehow rendered to be a lower value. And all the costs that should be being covered are, you know, as they say, externalized. Meaning put so, on the public. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so we're bearing the brunt of a lot of these so problems the you mentioned. Degradation of land, people, and the environment, those are all consequences of a cheap food supply. So how do we fix the broken policy system so that it does prioritize the health of the public and the environment? The first thing that we have to do is, well, I mean, campaign finance clearly is, you know, a, <laughs> a big, 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 big fundamental problem. And I don't know how we change that except to just, you know. Elect people who are going <clears throat> to stand up to. Yeah. <laughs> and go out with get, perhaps get, get their to a, Get to a constitutional convention somehow. And uh, something about uh, around media that. too. Something about media figures in there big time. The media needs to cover this. For, from my point of view as a practitioner of public policy, policy wonk, 
the policy hack, <laughs> whatever. Uh, what I observed in serving deep inside the belly of the beast is that the concept of the public interest has really kind of faded and it's just not really on the radar screen to the extent that it is public interest is translated into economic interest surely and that what's good for jobs you mean steve if you're jobs a if you're a democrat <laughs> you know what is good for jobs and employment and labor you're a Republican, it's what is good for business, but those are the contesting views of the public interest. And that leaves out a great deal of other things. Right. You don't want a job just mopping up the mess that, you know, Monsanto <clears throat> made when it spilled a bunch of chemicals. That's not necessarily a good job. If you have to have it, great. But that's not the kind of jobs we want to create with what we're doing. We want to create jobs where people can be healthy and food that feeds us well. So in terms of Re rebuilding the policy system, you know, that's that's one of the basic building blocks. And, you know, I, I'm getting towards the end of my career, not quite ready to retire, but, um, you know, I'm trying to transmit my experience to younger people who are trying to work in public policy and uh, get them to understand, you know, some of these things that we've been through. But but they're the ones who are going to have to reinvent the policy system. And it's not just around the edges. It sounds like it has to be fundamentally rethought. Yes, I, I think that's been the lesson of the last 20 or 30 years. We've made good progress around the edges and inroads, but, um, but we haven't dismantled the fundamental imperatives that, you know, we're trying to remedy. And that's going to take a more comprehensive rebuilding and, and i don't see how you can rebuild it fundamentally unless you do remove the impact of big monopolies on the political process and the, the policy process and we'll have to stay tuned we can obviously go on for a long time about this but uh we've been speaking with mark lipson thank you for coming in on planet watch he's a policy expert in agriculture policy organics in particular and it's always interesting to hear an insider's view on all of this. So thank you for sharing it with us and hope people listening who are thinking about a policy career will not be discouraged, but will take this as a throwing down the gauntlet and challenge to them to reinvent what we have into something better for the rest of us. And thanks, well said. And thanks Mark. And stick around for the last three or four minutes because we're going to segue into something about farming, the harvest moon. The harvest moon is coming up. It'll be our next full moon, the one that's closest to the fall equinox. That'll be after next week's show, though. So on next week's show, I'll tell you why they call it the harvest moon. It's kind Great. of interesting. You're going to keep that promise because you yes, often yes. promise you're going to tell people things next most, week. Most of the time I do. <laughs> there was a riddle two weeks ago. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> um, maybe one of our listeners will. Uh, so here's the one that is coming up for this week, though. We have the fall equinox, the autumnal equinox, at least in the northern hemisphere. Southern hemisphere, it's going to be the spring or vernal equinox. And that's coming up on September 22nd. It never comes up on the 21st, by the way. It's always the 22nd or even the 23rd. 
And I looked it up. I think it was, I don't remember. I think it was 6.54 p.m. our time out here in California. You can uh, tell me if I'm lying. But that's the moment. The, the fall equinox is the moment where the sun is directly overhead. The center of the sun is directly overhead for some lucky fish or tree or bug or maybe a person on the equator as the sun is crossing from the northern hemisphere into the southern hemisphere. So bye-bye summertime here in the northern hemisphere. Here um, in California, we just have two seasons, the rainy one and the dry one. <laughs> and the dry one's been getting longer. And today happens to be out here in Santa Cruz, California. This is like one of the most beautiful days in history. It's, it's amazing. Come on, come on down to the coast if you, if you feel like it. Um, and uh, we're at our, about our last week, maybe two, of all four planets lined up from west to east across the sky. Venus in the far west, Jupiter up in, to the left of that. Saturn over to the left of that, and then the angry orange Mars coming up in the southeast. You can't miss it. And they all four sweep out the plane of the solar system. Venus will be reaching its greatest brilliancy this week. You'll be able to see it in the broad daylight. I'll be able to show it to our folks right here as soon as we step outside the studio, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You can actually see this white dot up there in the middle of the blue sky. Venus is so bright. And yet in a telescope, it's a crescent. Go figure on that one. That'll be a riddle for you. Why is it brightest when it's actually a crescent? So anyway, it looks like Rachel has something there for us, maybe. Um, I just wanted to thank all of our listeners for listening to Planet Watch for this week with your hosts, Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. You can catch our podcast, Never Miss an Episode, by going to planetwatchradio.com. And we'll have another special guest next week. Mark Weller of California Pesticide Reform. We were talking about how pesticides aren't quite as sexy maybe as carbon removal from the atmosphere, but hey, it's super important stuff. And uh, maybe even Mary Flodine will be accompanying him who has worked for years on getting the pesticides off the strawberry fields around the schools, such as the ones where she taught. And she's got a new book coming out, Fruit of the Devil. And tonight there's an event in Santa Cruz at the Art Center, 1001 Center Street, starting at 6.30. Meet her and other authors, part of a new anthology. Thank you, Joe, and thanks for listening. We'll see you.